And they have been doing some talking. Elaine Bernard, their world record holder in the 100 free, earlier told a newspaper, well, but what about the Americans? We're going to smash them. That's what we came here for. That article has been looked at by the Americans for extra inspiration, Rowdy, but it's going to take a lot, realistically, for the United States to out-touch France. Just don't think he can do it. He's trying to ride that wave as much as possible. Bernard is pulling away from him. Lisa, Look at the world record. A three-time Olympian. World record is absolutely going to be shattered here. The United States trying to hang out a second. They should get the silver medal. Australia is in bronze territory right now, but Lezak is closing a little bit on Bernard. Can the veteran chase him down and pull off a shocker here? Well, there's no doubt that he's tightening up. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Not too much else needs to be said. Uh, I couldn't resist that for a couple of reasons. One, I'm an American citizen, and you just got to show that, whether it has anything to do with the scripture passage or not. And secondly, it actually has a tremendous amount to do with what we're going to look at this morning out of Luke uh, chapter 10. Um, the, the French uh, quote was, we will smash them. That's what we, that's what we came here to do. Uh, and the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning is, is not about a Frenchman who's a swimmer, but it's about an attorney, a lawyer, and I'm not picking on you lawyers. Uh, that's really what his profession was, um, who has that exact same intention. He's heard about Jesus, no doubt. He has uh, uh, been aware of the fact that Jesus has been, for the last three years, uh, traveling around Galilee and, and proclaiming to be the Messiah and uh, preaching his gospel and, and winning over converts and winning disciples. And uh, there's a momentum that's been building, and yet there's something uh, about Jesus and his message that doesn't resonate with this particular person. And now as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, as he comes closer into contact with uh, his, his uh, eventual death and resurrection, uh, this attorney uh, seeks out Jesus in order to smash him. <laughs> in order to have an intellectual debate in which he's very confident that he's going to put Jesus in his place. Uh, the question is, how does Jesus respond uh, to what the lawyer asks through questions that are very, very loaded and claims about himself? Uh, and does Jesus offer any hope to this person? Does he offer any grace, any mercy, or rather does he in turn uh, put him in his place, so to speak? Uh, but here is one who is, who is not a disciple of Jesus, He's not a confidant of Jesus. He is rather someone who, who has set himself up to be diametrically opposed to Christ and sets out to, uh, 
to embarrass Jesus in front of his friends, in front of his, in front of his followers. He's come to, to smash Jesus. So uh, with that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 10. You can turn your Bibles or the passage will be on the screen and see why it maybe isn't a good idea to, to pick an argument with Jesus. Beginning in verse 25 and reading through verse 37, hear the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I, excuse me, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, I can't begin to, uh, to do this passage justice. Uh, even the visual on the screen of, of someone who is so uh, smug and confident in their own ability and, and yet uh, finding out that maybe things turn out a little differently, don't begin to... Uh, describe the eternal significance of what happened between Jesus and this lawyer. Father, we're tempted to look at this as a historical event that took place some 2,000 years later, and perhaps there was something there for the lawyer. Uh, Perhaps there was something there that Jesus was trying to say to him, but what on earth could that have to do with me today in my particular setting here in 21st century America? Uh, as a businessman or woman, as a, as a teacher, as a student, as a young person, as an older person, as a person who uh, reads the Bible and thinks maybe it's got some good ideas or a person who's never even thought about a relationship with God and doesn't even know whether or not you exist. Father, we're tempted to sit politely and uh, then go on our way. Yet, Lord God, I pray that you would uh, move me aside Lord, I confess my sin to you. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say because there is great significance and great importance for each man and woman and child who is in this room this morning in this encounter that Jesus has uh, with with this lawyer. So Father, I pray that you would uh, come in the power of your spirit, the power of your word, and that you would teach us, Lord Jesus, that we would see you. We pray in your name, amen. Luke records, behold, a lawyer stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? I think it's always good to, if you can, you don't always, but I think it's good to know a person's motives. 
uh, to understand what's behind a question or statement they may be offering or they may be asking. And this person's intent was to confront Jesus with what he thought was the error of Jesus' ways or the errors of Jesus' teaching. So he stands up. In other words, Jesus was probably uh, seated in a room full of people or, or maybe out in the country with a group of folks, but there's, there's a, a setting of a group and Jesus has been teaching them. And the teaching time has come to a close, and the lawyer stands up and says, you know, before we all go, Lord, I'd just like to ask you a question if you don't mind. Now, the question he asks is is a great question. It's a very important question. If there is eternal life, if that, in fact, is something that exists, then I would think that you and I and every person that's ever walked on the planet would want to know what the key to that eternal life might be. And so the lawyer asks a very fine spiritual question. I wish more people asked me that question in all honesty. And he says, Lord, what what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? But what we need to see in this passage in verse 25 is that this is not a question at all, but rather it's a statement. And the statement is, Jesus, I'm here to to kind of put you in your place, so to to speak. I've heard about your reputation. Uh, I've I've seen the billboards, so to speak. Uh, A lot of folks have have talked about you. There's a lot of clamor. There's a lot of of buzzing about you and your ministry. And and now that uh, we come face to face, I, I... think that I can outsmart you. I think I've got some questions that maybe you won't be able to answer. So the the point of this man's question is not to find out the answer to eternal life. He thinks he already has that answer put away in his back pocket, but rather it's to uh, bring Jesus under scrutiny. Now, I want to suggest to you that if you're going to enter into a debate with somebody, uh, if you're going to enter into a a conversation with somebody where you're going to take opposing sides, uh, you ought to know the person with whom you're uh, entering into that conversation. This is a man who was by trade a lawyer, which means that he studied the first five books of the Bible. He knew them backwards and forwards. He could repeat them to you because within the first five books of the Bible, you have the law of God. And so this is a man who is steeped in the knowledge of the law, and he thinks Jesus is a lightweight. And he thinks, you know, Jesus has been saying a lot of of odd-sounding things. I can't believe that somebody hasn't addressed those with him. And he sees himself as an authority figure. The problem or the flaw with his thinking is that he's coming as an expert in the law, and he's having a debate with the man who actually wrote the law. You see, Jesus didn't begin his life when he was conceived by the Virgin Mary. Jesus is the eternal God of eternal God. He is one with the Father and the Spirit forever existing. Jesus was the one who met with Moses on Mount Sinai and said, I want you to write a few things down. And so this man who is so sure of himself comes face to face with the actual author of the law. Uh, There's a story that's told about a a group of students who were sitting in Cambridge in a a tea shop and a cafe uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, discussing the work of C.S. Lewis. And as the story goes, there was one particular student who was pretty pompous about his knowledge of Lewis, and he was was pouring all this out on his friends, and they were kind of listening, and every time they would ask a question about, well, I'm not sure that Lewis meant that when he wrote this uh, particular thing, he'd say, oh, you just don't know, you don't understand, and then he would explain all of it. And after this went on for some time, apparently there was an elderly gentleman sitting close by and overheard the conversation, and he stood up and he walked over to the table and he said to the young man looking him straight in the eye, I think perhaps, sir, you have missed the point. How do you do? I'm Clive Staples Lewis. It's nice to meet you. (laughs) Unbeknownst to this attorney, he is coming face to face with the author. How does Jesus respond to such arrogance? How does Jesus respond to to someone who's going to put him in his place? I know how I would respond, and it probably wouldn't be very nice. But in verse 26, Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? 
How do you read it? Jesus answers the question with a question. Now, in doing so, he makes a statement. He brings the man back to the law. He says, you want to talk law? That's great. Let's talk law because therein is the key and the answer to life. The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul, making wise the simple. The law of God is the place we should look to understand the character of God, to understand his holiness and his beauty and his perfection. And so Jesus says, I think that's a great topic for conversation. Let's talk about the law. How do you see it? But notice that he does it by asking a very nice question. He doesn't belittle the man. He doesn't try to put him down. He actually honors him and and respects him for his legal knowledge. And he says, well, tell me what you think. He refrained from being uh, rude or arrogant towards this person. Uh, That's not what my response would have been. I grew up with Mad Magazine. How many of you guys read Mad Magazine when you were kids? We've got a, got a few Mad Magazines. One of my favorite pages in Mad Magazine was snappy answers to stupid questions. I just loved that. I would go to that page. It would be almost the first page I would read. There's a, there's a cartoon picture of a guy sitting next to a lake. He has a fishing pole in his hand. He's got, a, he's got a pail right next to him. He's obviously been fishing, and there's a big fish in the pail. And the person walks up to him and says, hey, did you catch that fish? Answer, no, I just talked him into surrendering. You know, I just love, I love that tone. I just, you know, kind of stick the knife in. That's not what Jesus does. You're going, boy, we got a great compassionate pastor. I'm so excited I'm at this church. Jesus offers a way out. He offers, he says, what are you thinking? Be careful what you say next. How do you read the law? And the man offers a revealing response into his own heart in verse 27. He answers, Here, here's how you get eternal life. Okay, that's the question. How do I get eternal life? And the man says, here's how you do it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the answer he gives for how he plans on gaining eternal life. Because anybody, anytime somebody asks that question, and they already have in their mind the answer, they've applied it to themselves. And they're very confident that they've landed in the right place. So this man is not only making a theological statement, he's not only saying, I know what what the word says, and he goes right to Deuteronomy 6 and right to Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, love your neighbors yourself. He goes right to the law. But he's also expressing a world life view about his own ability to do that. He's saying, I'm confident that this is my lifestyle and that I'm going to gain eternal life. It's a revealing response. It's a very arrogant response. You would think that perhaps he would say, you know what? I've read the law and I know it and I get it, but it seems impossible to me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It seems impossible to me to love my neighbors myself on a, on a daily basis, on a consistent basis with which God would be pleased. We sang that song, the very first song we sang this morning, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I certainly hope we didn't read that thinking that we accomplish that every day and that we work our way or earn our way to heaven. But this man was at that place. He thinks, you know what? I'm, I'm in good shape. This is the answer. And Jesus, I believe in verse 28, offers him a very gracious warning. He says to the man, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus is not offering that this is the answer. 
He's not suggesting that perfection in this life is possible. In fact, he's offering this man an opportunity to back up and look at his life and examine what he has just said and how it matches up with how he lives because Jesus knows that right now that man is not loving him very well. That man is there with animosity in his heart to put Jesus in his place. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. Who, who shows up in a public forum and says, I really hope somebody embarrasses me today. I just can't wait till somebody makes me look like a fool. Here's the man violating the commandment in the depths of his heart, and he's blind to see it. And so if Jesus throws up a red flag and says, wait a minute, before you go any further with this argument, do you understand that, that the only way for you to live is to do this perfectly? And the warning goes completely unheeded. You know, it's like when men, when, when you're with your wife, and, I, and I'm just going to use this as a personal example, and, and your wife is trying on something new. And she says, how does this make me look? Does, does this make me look fat? Okay, guys, that's not a question. <laughs> if you don't know that, <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> you should be going, warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. You know, you should, be, you should be paying attention to that. There's only one answer. It's a statement. You're beautiful in that dress. I love you. You look wonderful. You look better than the day I married you. Jesus is throwing up a warning. He's going, don't run off the cliff of self-righteousness. When he said, do this and you will live, the guy should have said, I'm lost. But he misses the warning completely. And in verse 29, we see a blind presumption. But he, that being the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, he has no need for the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He has no need for God's compassion. In his mind, he is doing it all just right. But there's one final question. And who is my neighbor? He doesn't listen to Jesus. He hasn't heard a word that Jesus has said. And with a self-righteous smugness found only in those who are least aware of their true condition, he justifies himself. He says, I'm good enough as it is. Jesus, I've done all that I should do. And you should accept me just the way I am. I was uh, driving into the office this morning early and I passed by Guy Road Baptist Church and I look at their signs because Ed Plant put some really good signs out there on their marquee. And there was a great one out there this morning from D.L. Moody. And, and Dwight Moody said, God sends no one away empty-handed except for those who are already full of themselves. Here's a man who is in radical danger of going away empty-handed because he's so full of himself. And I ask myself, as I, as I listen to the word of God, as I study God's word, as I prepare it to come and bring it to you guys on Sunday morning, am I actually listening? <laughs> am I actually submitting my will to God's? Am I actually paying attention? Am I here to ask questions of God or am, am I here to tell God what's the right, what's the wrong, and how he should treat me? And so this man says, and who is my neighbor? And the word he uses for neighbor is not like, you know, somebody that maybe lives in the house next door to you. It's not like maybe a casual acquaintance that you run into, but he uses a word that means familiarity. It means that this is somebody that's in my close circle of friends. So who is it, Jesus? If I'm going to do this, I've already got loving God down. I got that fine. Who's the neighbor? Who, Who are those people that I should consider worthy of my love? Do you see the self righteousness? And Jesus very patiently, and very kindly tells him a story. He says there was a guy who was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, several kilometers, about a nine-mile distance, really bad road, 
really bad stretch of roads out in the wilderness. There are no towns close by. Great place for robbers to hang out. You know, great place for somebody who wants to mug somebody or, or carjack them or, or donkey jack them, I guess, in those days. You know, they could, they, could, they could steal anything from them, okay? Great place to do it. And this man, he just says a man, but he uses a term that's probably a Jewish person. Uh, it's probably somebody that, that they would know. He's kind of like saying, you know, this is like a guy that lives in your town, was walking down the street, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was going down the hill because Jerusalem's on a mountain and Jericho's down below. But this stretch of road's a bad stretch of road. He says he's going down the road, and he's accosted by these robbers. And they strip him, and they take everything that belongs to him, and they beat him half to death. They almost kill him. Here's one of your buddies, and he's in dire circumstances. He's in terrible need. He's in the worst spot he's ever been in his life. And along comes a, 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 a priest. And everybody's got to be going, well, that's really good news. Because if anybody's going to stop and help, you know, it's a priest. You know, if, if, if the pastor doesn't stop on the side of the road, I always think if I see somebody that needs help, I want to pull over just in case any of you see me driving by. You know, oh, look at our pastor did, you know. How's that for my own self-attitude? But that's for my counselor to work out, not you to worry about. Priest looks at him. He crosses over on the other side. I don't have anything to do with him. Now, some commentators have argued that, that a priest might not want to touch this person because he might very well be dead. If he's lying in a ditch, beaten to a pulp, bloody, just a mess, and his eyes are closed and you can't really tell if there's any breathing at all, he may be dead. And if a priest touches a dead body by the law, he's defiled. And so Jesus actually brings the law back into play here, I think, in an interesting way. And if a priest touches a dead body, he's got to go through all this rigmarole and all these ceremonies and several days of becoming pure again so he can serve God. And some commentators have argued, well, you ought to cut the, police some, the, the, the priest some slack because maybe he was going to serve and he, and he needed to stay pure. Maybe he's thinking, I'd like to help the guy, but I just can't. Only problem with that is the priest is traveling the same direction as the guy who got mugged. <laughs> he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's not going to serve in the temple. His temple service has been completed and he's going home and he just can't be bothered. And likewise, a Levite, who's kind of like an assistant to the priest, another religious person. Somebody's thinking, well, the priest had a good day, but, but now a Levite's coming, everything will be okay. He too passes on the other side. And if you're listening to this story as a lawyer, you're thinking, okay, well, Jesus is telling us that we, that we shouldn't be you know, religious like the priest without really doing stuff. So now you know, uh, an average, ordinary uh, Jewish businessman is gonna come to the rescue. Just a regular guy is gonna save him. no. A Samaritan happens along. And when he looked at the man, he had compassion. The priest may have felt pity. The Levite may have felt sorry. But neither of those words are action words. Compassion is a word that connects the emotion to an activity. And when it says that he had compassion, it meant that he rolled up his sleeves and he looked at that man and he felt bad. He said, now, what are we going to do to take care of this guy? And then Jesus gives the list of how this man goes way out of his way to care for this one, how the Samaritan helps him. Now, Samaritan is not somebody who's a friend to the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. I mean, think about, you know, our worst rival, the Chicago Cubs, and how much we don't like them, and multiply that times 100, okay? And you'll get where the Jews and the Samaritans were. They really didn't like each other. If this man, this Jewish man who had been mugged, if he had seen that Samaritan the day before, he wouldn't have had anything to do with him. He'd have crossed over on the other side of the street to stay away from him. 
And the Samaritan has compassion. What does he do? He binds his wounds. He uses oil that's a salve it, it, that, that has a healing uh, ingredient to it. And he pours wine on his, on his wounds, the disinfectant there, the alcohol to kind of kill any of the germs that may be there. He sets him on his own animal. He, he demonstrates that this man's more important right now. The, the more important person always rides on the animal. The, the servant walks. And this Jewish man or the Samaritan makes himself a servant to this Jew to make sure he can get him into a town. And he takes him to the inn and he looks after him. And the language there suggests that it's kind of like staying up all night with a sick loved one. He, throughout the night, he cared for him. He should probably changed his bandages. He continued to give him any aid he possibly could. The next day, not only did he keep him at the inn at his own expense, but before he left, he hands the innkeeper two denarii, which is about two days worth of wages, which probably would have bought somewhere between seven and 12 days worth of uh, room and board at the inn and, and care. And not only does he give him two denarii, but he says, you know what, if it costs you anything else, don't worry. I'll be back through, and when I come back, I'll settle up with you. It's kind of language that would go on between people who knew each other. It's kind of like the, the businessman stayed here pretty often. The innkeeper kind of knew him. It's like, you know what, Joe, take care of him. And if anything happens, when I come back through, we'll square up. And Joe says, fine, don't worry about it. I'll take care of him. If it costs more, I'll pay. <laughs> this is all an answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because I'm sure I know God pretty good. I'm sure I'm loving him the way I should. And by the way, who is my neighbor? <laughs> And Jesus says, kind of Tom Rick's paraphrase, lawyer, you ask me, how do I inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? My response to you is that the person who knows the first answer or the answer to the first question never asks the second. Because the person who knows how to gain eternal life knows that they can't love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that it isn't possible to love God perfectly because of our sinfulness and because of our brokenness. And because they know they can't live up to God's law, they don't come to God with a smugness that is, that is arrogant and spiritually prideful, but they come to God and they say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God says, amen, brother. Amen, sister. That's what I'm here to do. Funny you should come to me. I'm in the business of mercy. That's what my son dying on the cross is all about. And all you had to do was ask. While you were God's enemy, Christ died for you. Jesus has painted a picture in a human terms of what God has done in an eternally and more weighty uh, means through the cross than we could ever imagine. And the person who understands they need grace doesn't ask who is my neighbor because God has treated me as a neighbor. He's treated me as one of his close friends. He's treated me as part of the family. That word neighbor there, Jesus uses the exact same word. We are God's neighbor even while we were his enemies. And God gives it to us freely through the cross of Christ. And Jesus understands that when you get mercy and when you begin to understand the love and compassion of God, then you understand that everybody is your neighbor. You understand that you are now, since you have received mercy, you are now one who dispenses mercy. So Jesus asks the question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? What do you think? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
Jesus is saying to the man, do you get it? (laughs) Do you understand that you need God's mercy? If you get it, you would never have asked me the question in the first place, who is my neighbor? Because you would have come up to me with a smile on your face, a stupid grin that you couldn't stop from ear to ear, and you would have said, Jesus, who can I help today? How can I possibly give some of this mercy that God has given me back into my community, back into my family, back into the human relationships that I enjoy because of your grace and your mercy? How can I be your conduit to show God's love? The reasoning changes. The reasoning is because God has been merciful to me. The question is not who is my neighbor, but the question is turned. And it's now a question that looks in the mirror and says, am I being a good neighbor to those whom God has put in my path? Friends of Green Tree Community Church, we talk about renewing communities. talk about planting churches. We talk about growing disciples. Those are, those are our core values. We will never reach anywhere near to our potential in those values if we don't understand the mercy of God that we so desperately need and cling daily, moment by moment, to the cross of Christ and his compassion and his mercy that pulled us out of a ditch when we were all but dead at a great expense to himself, more than a couple of days worth of wages at his own life. If we don't start there and stay there with every fiber of our being, we will never be the agents of mercy that God has intended. But if we begin to get it, if we begin to understand the mercy that it took to save us, we will have an impact on this community, on this world, that is beyond our reason, beyond our comprehension. We'll stand back in awe and say, what on earth is happening? What's happening is God's mercy, God's eternal life is flowing through us to others. Who's your neighbor? Let's pray.